Explaining the brand DNA of Starbucks is simple. Here, we don't serve coffee to people. We serve people coffee. And I think if we could understand that we're serving people uniforms and not uniforms to people, I think we're in much better shape. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the Network Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Hello, welcome to The Uniformer. This is Rick Levine. I am pleased and smiling uh, to welcome Jeff Mason here uh, with us today. So Jeff, uh, first of all, welcome, Jeff. Uh, thanks so much, Rick. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the show for sure. So Jeff is a veteran of the apparel world in general, and certainly a, a number of brands within the uniform space. Um, Jeff reps some current uniform companies, and he also uh, has uh, an amazing podcast himself, uh, so he is no shrinking violet when it comes to podcasts. Jeff came to speak at our convention in 2023 to talk about all the wonderful uh, experience, economy, best practices that he's been working on through his um, ventures. And so, Jeff, I know that this will be uh, a different kind of talk because you're also used to the being the one that asks the questions. So that's okay too. We can have a conversation sure. and dialogue, but maybe just give the um, listeners kind of an overview of the different companies that you're working on at the moment and, and sort of the broad stroke of the Jeff Mason Inc. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly. And, and uh, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So I, I basically started in the apparel business and, in 1992, working for Oxford Industries, and I caught the bug, like many of us, and I really got passionate about private label apparel. I felt like I was a, you know, cook in a kitchen, and I, I had all these ingredients, you know, and you put together this pocket with that, you know, color and this feature, and it just, you know, was a lot of fun. Ended up getting introduced to the uniform industry through that um, company. I was with Oxford Slacks, a division of Oxford Industries. For, for those of you who don't know who they are, they own Tommy Bahama. And so back then, I was making a lot of goods for Target and Kohl's and uh, the Buckle and a lot of these bigger retailers and specialty chains. And and so I, I come upon uh, Proper International, made a sales call on Proper, and long story short, ended up being invited to their executive team and got introduced from an executive level to this you know, industry through Proper. And then um, in 2008, started my own sales agency, North 59 um, LLC, which is now operating under North 59 Outdoors. And I, for, for, I'm in my 16th year of uh, repping many different companies in this space. And uh, currently, you know, a couple of names you may know, Boston Leather uh, with uh, those folks. So with Original Footwear Company, which does three different boot brands and, and um, and you know, a number of other brands, Tasmanian Tiger, Snug Pack, which uh, were at the convention. They didn't show, but they were at the convention this year. And I think they're going to probably come come in next year. So, yeah, that's um, that's where I am today. And then my passion has been uh, delving into the experience economy. And that started in 1988. So, so the experience economy piece of it goes back to 1988. Wow. So that's been a through line for you, really. Yeah. And I, I really realized back then I needed something towards the latter part of my career to be kind of a specialist in or focus on. I really wanted to be able to, um, in, in a way, monetize my own brand, if you will. But I read an interesting government study, uh, Rick, in 1988, and it talked about bad customer experiences and what the pain points of those bad experiences are. And it became a laser focus for me. And I said, you know what, I want to start examining this and watching this and testing this and reading this and, and doing everything I can to understand what's making this happen. So, you know, um, here I am, uh, have been able to work for about 32 different companies uh, over my career. I feel like I've gotten an MBA in, in the customer service, you know, portion of it. I've been able to manage to national customer service teams along that way as well. So yeah, I'm um I'm really passionate about 
uh, apparel and really passionate about the customer experience. So what makes the best customer experience in the apparel world? <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> let's get I, right to the heart of it, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think it's customer centricity and listening, you know, listening to what those end users have to say, what mm -hmm. are their needs? What are their wants? And then you can bring them something that they deserve. And I think um, many companies out there, in my opinion, have harnessed that very, very well. I think when you look at the, you know, original uh, 511 formula, just very, very um, had a benchmark there to make sure that they, you know, really interviewed and spent time with the end users, the operators to develop something that was meaningful. Spiwak, I worked with Spiwak for a number of years, you know, same thing, great product. And th their product stems from uh, the, you know, close connection with that end user. So I think that customer centricity, as long as we understand that end user and what they need, I think we can build a better, you know, mousetrap, better apparel. We can service these, these customers better. So in this age of, you know, the digital transaction, and you've seen that whole evolution as you've been observing this. And so, right. yes, of course, there's, you could argue on the one hand, maybe there's more mechanisms for the end user to provide feedback because we have these instant somewhat anonymous, you know, digital right. uh, tools to give feedback. Um, but but there's also then the other side of, well, if we're spending less physical time in a store or on site with, um, so you were mentioning 511 for listeners that are familiar, that's 511 Tactical. And they came to our industry a couple of decades ago with, you know, really a whole fresh new approach of getting out into the public safety departments and actually running events with them and doing a lot more closer connections with between them and the product. And so I assume that's some of what you're talking about, but how do we marry that nowadays then as companies, where do we think about the balance between we got to send our team around the country, let's just say, even though we're, you know, an international network, yep. how do we send them around the country you know, at the same time, you know, keeping our expenses, you know, sure. um, under control and leaning more on digital products. Is there a sure. magic formula there? Well, you know, I think that I think, you know, the, the this central component is the focus group kind of, you know, atmosphere is it I think. And, and you know, the digital platforms, I think, could offer some separatism from that, you know, a departure from that focus group format, but they can also bind us together. I mean, these, you know, Zoom calls, these, you know, town hall meetings, these these collective calls that I've been a part of uh, in some of these uh, digital spaces has been wonderful. And it's been able to get a lot of voices together at one time. So I think there's another opportunity there that we may be missing. But I think that, you know, I think the essence of that focus group mindset is so valuable to our industry because it's those conglomerate of different end users that can tell you exactly what is missing, what they need. And, you know, I, I love that question. If you could, if you had a magic wand and you could create the right apparel for Southwest airlines or United airlines, or, you know um, you know, your department, what, what would you incorporate in it? And I think there's some valuable, insight to be gleaned from those types of uh, questions. So I think, you know, I think the digital atmosphere offers a great avenue for focus groups, but I think that's where the answer lies for building better product. Where does that fit in then with the customer service angles as far as, so we've developed these products Right. So that's one piece of it. Sure. Right? That's, sure. that's kind of the de design development uh, piece of it. And yeah. then you've got this, you know, you've started a few minutes ago by saying, you know, you, you started by noticing decades ago, bad customer service. Like, right. and, and, and why are we doing that? Is it that we just don't know how to provide good customer service? Is that we are lazy? Is it that we are, don't care? Uh, is it, you know, that we just haven't been taught? Is it, you know, that we don't have the good examples? So once we have those products, how do we fall down? 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's a charged question. And, and, and really, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at the totality of the customer service mindset, I think that anytime, whether we're dealing with the end user, we're dealing with a dealer, we're dealing with a, with a raw materials, a partner, uh, you know, or, or an associate in the industry, I think we have to try to look at um, their situation through their lens. And so I think in a customer service atmosphere, I mean, I would encourage any executive out there to pick, you know, if you've got a customer service network and you've got lunch breaks, take over a customer service phone for an hour while one of your CSRs goes on lunch break. Wow. I did that for many, many, many months when I first started a proper and you learn a plethora of great, valuable pieces of information, insights, because you can get a chance to talk to some of these folks and find out what's really, um, what are some of their pain points. And I think the easiest way for us to provide better customer service is to realize what's causing these folks a great deal of pain, whether they're a dealer, whether they're a, a raw materials partner, manufacturing partner, or whether they're an end user that actually is the one that wears the product. And I think that, um, you know, the answers are different for every company. I mean, I really do. I think the formula for each company slightly, you know, differs slightly, but the focus is on seeing your business through their lens. And if you can really do that, that's where I believe that the customer experience can be enriched and you can get more better repeat and referral business, certainly referral business. You know, sometimes we're in a one and done atmosphere. You can't, you know, you can't, can't get a second sale from them right away, but you can certainly get a referral for the overall experience that you've created. So, um, you know, I think it's different with every company, but, you know, we have to continually put ourselves behind their keyboard in their shoes and their uniforms and see things through their lens. Empathy is what you're saying, right? Which has, you know, for uh, uh, several years was the, the buzzword among, you know, CEOs in many industries. I also had a CEO once say to me, well, they consider their job to remove friction. So, yeah. and, and how do you find the friction and depending on the size and the culture of your organization, similar to what you're saying is, well, you know, you're not going to hear about the friction unless you actually are asking the end user, for example, unless you're really communicating with them and, and making them and being empathetic enough that they will actually identify and speak to their friction. Uh, and you know, what's, what's wrong? What's, well, what's not, you know, what's not working. Um, but I also love on the flip side, then not just friction, but I love your concept of why not ask them to help dream? Why not ask them what's your ideal? If you, you know, set aside what features we were just discussing that may or may not be perfect, you know, what, what do you wish was out there? You wish that your, you know, your pants could make you a latte every morning. I mean, <laughs> Well, well, and, and and exactly when you you know let's just go back if we could to this study I read in 1988. It was actually produced in 1985, a TARP study, and in it, Rick, it said 26 out of 27 people who have a bad experience with a cust cu company never tell the company about it. And why is that? Because they expect no change. Then 91% of those people never come back to that company. So here's why there's such an impetus and such an importance on asking the customers, what's going on? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What could we do different? Because they're not going to tell you. They're going to quietly leave and say, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to tell Mason how bad of an experience I had with this, that, or the other thing, because nothing's going to change anyway. I'm just going to disappear into the moonlight. And, uh, you know, I'd never know they disappeared until I see their numbers disappear on a report or until I call them again. So the art is, hey, you know, get them before they get to you. You know, you know, I, I love the idea of a right after a transaction, you know, a couple of days, 48 hours, get back with the customer. Hey, what did you think of that? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about how we handled that? And, you know, it, it, if any suggestions that you can come up with, we'd love to hear them. What, you know, feel free. We'd love to hear what you have to say about it. So I think there's an, a tremendous wealth of information when we go to the end user 
when we go to that person who's really wearing our product or reselling our product and ask them, you know, what they think about everything. But then if we don't take actions based on what they say, isn't that going to, I mean, I, I imagine part of the fear of doing that is, well, I'm going to hear things that aren't good. You know, Henry Ford, right, is famous for saying, you know, sure, we'll offer you any color car you want as long as it's black. Right. You can tell us you can tell us about color all day long. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that you just have to be fair and open and say, look, you know what? We we, we, we want to glean this information. You, you may or may not see something done with this, but, you know, the more we can have to reshape what we do, the better off we are. And hopefully, you know, I, uh, next time I talk to you, I can give you an update on, on if anything was, you know, done with your input. And I mean, you know, and again, I think the human relations part of it, a lot of times, Rick, I think it's just the exercise of being able to talk, I think is wonderful. I, I'll give you a prime example. I went through a, a, a really difficult ERP transition as an executive vice president with Proper. I mean, it, you know, the industry remembers it back in 2002. It was very difficult. It took us quite a while. And when I finally went out on the road, I got shot with rubber bullets for about four months. Mm. And the first things that those dealers, and as I traveled the country, wanted to do is take me to some quiet room poke me in the chest a little bit and and shoot me with a few rubber bullets and say boy you caused us a tremendous amount of headaches in this that or the other area and you know what when that was done when that was out of their system i realized this i watched it when it was out of their system okay now let's talk about business they just wanted to be heard Mm. And, you know, they certainly didn't want us to recreate some of our uh, pain points, but they just wanted to be heard. And, and you know what, I, I, um, I, I got thick skin <laughs> after that, you know, four or five months out in the field, because literally I got hammered everywhere I went, but it was fair hammering and, and I learned a lot from it. And you probably weren't unaware of the, the pain, um, but by being empathetic, by listening by absorbing, by saying, yes, we hear you, you know, then the customer was able to, you know, work through it and say, okay, well, they're aware and I'm sure, uh, you know, they mean well. Yeah. I mean, listening, I mean, I, I think in many cases, as I recall those, that, that, that time period, you know, I was at the end of our meeting and product presentation or whatever it ended up being generally there were smiles and handshakes and thank yous. And it was more like, Hey, I'm just glad someone listened. And if you go back to that TARP report, the reason 26 out of 27 people leave and never come back is because they really don't expect anything to change if they do complain to the company. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm here in their offices. It's their opportunity to tell me what they, you know, they're unhappy about. And they did. And it just seemed like once they got it out of their system, they were ready for more because honestly, you know, quite frankly, everyone knew, you know, proper made a dynamite product, you know, another company that made excellent product. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we mishandled that ERP transit transformation. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that company's never let it happen again. Again, back to this digital world, now it's so easy to do that publicly, right? So now I can just go out and, and so these big brands have to monitor social channels because someone could be speaking up and if it goes unresponded to, that also looks like, well, they're not listening. So that's quite a challenge for a lot of companies nowadays. It is. Uh, no question about it. It definitely is. And I think it's the new, you know, it's the new frontier that uh, we have to, you know, we have to embrace. That's part of that customer experience. It's part of the venting. It's part of the complaint process. It's part of the feedback process. Sometimes it's just, you know, to the world rather than to just us. They also say, they, whoever they is, Jeff, uh, <laughs> they also say that, you know, if you have a bad experience, you tell I'm just going to make up numbers. This isn't right. This isn't real. You tell five friends about it. If you have a good experience, you either don't tell anyone or you tell one friend. Well, this TARP study, Rick, there's more to it. And I, and I put it to the impetus of my book and uh, certainly my talk at the last convention is that, yes, if you take that formula that the TARP study unveiled was that, you know, um, 
91% of those people leave and never come back. But here's the next part of it. A majority, and they didn't quantify majority, but a majority of those 91% of the people who leave and never come back go on to tell nine or 10 oh. colleagues, neighbors, associates, or so forth. Now, here's the kicker. 13% of the malcontents. So 13% go on to tell 20 or more people. Wow. And those are powerful flaming arrows shot at your business, maybe not for the product that you make or the, the service that you, you know, or the, the, the service that you provide. It was for how you handled the experience of them buying something from you. Those are powerful mathematics. How does the nuance of running a uniform program change or does it not change? Is is So, you know, the well, I don't know what percentage it is, but the biggest companies in our industry are making money by what I call annuities. <laughs> These sure. are programs sure. where, okay, we own this account. We have an agreement for this account and we are outfitting 10,000 employees and, you know, and, and they have to order from us. So, sure. you know, customer service can be a little more automated, can be a little more, you know, ri rigid, can be we don't do we still want the feedback uh, that you're talking about because these are purchases that are in the have to wear category right you now so and it's they have nothing to do with the decision makers that went into us as a company you know um providing that service to this company like uh right. what about the attitude of i really only need to keep happy the procurement manager and not right. the you know not the um the line worker who didn't order the right size to begin with and thinks it's our fault. Well, and see, that's where a, a great question, because I think based on my experience, it's that line worker that is shooting the flaming arrows back at corporate, back at the provider, back at the quartermaster, back to the you know procurement officer, whoever it may be. And they're the ones causing the pain points. And, and you know what I've and again, I don't have all the right answers, but I, if I think I've zeroed in on this, what, what I really think the, the right remedy for that is to build proper expectations. Like, a, I, 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 you know, anywhere I go, I'll talk to cops and go, oh, wow, where do you, where do you buy your uniforms? Oh, I buy them here. It takes so long to get them. Well, how long does it take? Oh man, it took me six months to get outfitted. Well, you know what? It probably takes six months to get outfitted with all your gear anyways, everywhere. So are, are the right expectations being built on the upfront to make that officer realize, yes, okay, you start going in to get fitted in December, you, captain, you, sergeant, you, you know, a patrol officer probably aren't going to come out with everything you ordered until June or July. That's how it's going to happen. And there's a, there's a, you know, just a ton of reasons why, but that's the expectation. So if, if I can tell somebody that up front, you know, you go to a restaurant, what's the wait? It's an hour and a, hour and 45 minutes. Okay. Well, you've got a decision to make. Do you want to go somewhere else or do you want to wait the hour and 45 minutes? You know, it's an hour and 45 minutes. So, okay. You know, you don't have anywhere to go because you're a procurement officer, got the uniforms here, but we're just going to tell you, please don't have any mixed you know, expectations, it's going to take six months to get you everything from your outer vest to your boots, to your shirts, to your, you know, you know, watcher caps, everything. It's just going to take that long. And I think if you can do that the right way, that's the right healthy message to send. So you've got to tell the procurement officer first, then you've got to tell, have the procurement officer make sure that they share that with the, you know, rank and file and certainly the command staff. But I think if everybody can sing from a realistic page, you, you set yourself up much better, but it's my contention, Rick, that it's that line worker, that patrol officer, that fireman, that, you know, um, airline worker, that, that flight attendant, it's those people that are the ones that are upset and unhappy. And it's them that are shooting the flaming arrows at your company. And they're shooting it back at corporate, the procurement, you know, the, the, the quartermaster and so forth. And that's where all this, all this thing gets ugly. So how do we, how do we do better? So we, we listen. Yes. But, yeah. um, in what ways, 
in what ways do we listen? What if they don't tell us? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, well, I think that, uh, you know, here's what I would say is that I think most of, or many of us have been in the industry for a while. We've built up our own historical database of course of events. How have things gone in the past? How, do, you know, this is my 27th agency of 200 or more officers that, you know, we've now outfitted. I've got 26 you know, his, historical references to go back on what went right, what went wrong, what could have been done differently with those other 26. And you, you kind of, you know, meld it into the, the 27th, right? And you say, I'm going to try to get ahead of the curve. I pretty much know what that patrol officer is on, will be unhappy about. I pretty much know what that flight attendant or what that baggage handler is going to complain about or find fault with. So why don't I get ahead of it and bake it into the expectations that we're delivering to our rank and file people that are actually wearing this product? And and Rick, again, I think if you can do that, I think you're heading many problems off at the pass. And you are creating a more sturdy perception cornerstone for the whole program to rest on. Okay. I really like that. I feel like we got to, we, you, you really got, I know that you have uh, courses, you have consulting, you know, um, right. uh, SOPs and ways that you help companies do this. You know, what I'm wondering now that we've kind of understood how to engage talk with, have empathy for, um, be more involved and in tune with what the end user is experiencing. We're this vertical industry. So you also have all this experience uh, going from uh, the sales, wearing the sales hat and right. going to the um, to to sell products to the dealer distributor level, let's say, um, right. and or to sell products directly to end users as well. But so from a sales perspective, as far as how do we encourage greater ordering? How do you open new accounts? How do you um, get a greater piece of a, the pie of a particular uniform program? So, you know, you have all this rich experience, decades of experience selling apparel. I'm wondering uh, a has the experience economy informed you as a salesperson as well, and how does that? Or B, what are some general words of wisdom or best practices you've experienced that maybe other salespeople might not think about when they're calling on their channel? Yeah, so I mean, listen, I uh, there's there's plenty of people that don't aspire to how you know I do business. They don't uh, you know put, roll out the welcome mat. I mean, it does happen at the dealer level. Uh, there's certain, uh, you know, brands that, that you might be representing that just don't meet the needs of that particular dealer in my world, in my space. But I think that, you know, cutting to the chase, I think that everything that I've been able to absorb and learn and understand and and live through is that if you can prove you are a professional that follows through, that is where you win more than you lose. Because I think based on looking at this for 30 years or more now, uh, that the Achilles heel in the American economy is that we have a lot of operators that don't follow through. So I think that, you know, I, I've certainly uh, learned that that's a message I send right out of the gate with people that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professional person that, that takes follow through very seriously. And if you, Mr. End user decide that you want to investigate and go through a wear test or evaluation on this product, you have my full follow through. The dealer has my full follow through. The dealer has that full support. No one will ever go, you know, a couple hours without hearing from me. Um, you know, I've, I've certainly fallen on my sword here or there for sure, but, um, you know, follow through is my, that is, uh, really what makes me tick as an operator. Yeah. So, I mean, I, re I really do speaking of follow through, can it, can I, can I follow through, uh, and ask you a couple of questions on about the convention and, and what's going on at NAUMD? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Let's go for it. Well, okay. I would love to. And listen, I just want to say it was a great experience. 
at the recent convention and there seemed to be a tremendous amount of energy and uh, just a lot of uh, professional excitement, I thought, at, at that convention. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the, some of the feedback you've gotten from it. Have you have, have folks uh, really uh, seen it the same way I did in, in large part? Yeah, we got a lot of positive feedback from the 2023 convention. We sent, uh, so similar to what you've been talking about, customer experience, uh, we sent a follow-up survey, which we don't necessarily do by default, and but this year we did. So we sent it to all um, uh, 400 attendees or registered, and we got uh, 50 replies, which I think is extraordinary. As if you think about yourself as a consumer, either sure. in the business world or just as a uh, a citizen, <laughs> you you know you rarely respond to those types of surveys. And the feedback was just tremendous. And just the sheer number of people responding, I took as a very good sign. The, you know, one of the things that I've done that I think has made a, a difference at the actual event is we we have this what we call first timers meeting uh, or welcome. So th- this year, for example, there were over 100 people that had ticked the box saying that this was the first time they were attending this convention this and we had the entire board lined up quite literally standing in a line um while i talked to there must have been you know 60 to 80 people that were there at the welcome uh, meeting on sunday and we walked them through and said look this is like you were saying jeff this is what to expect from this type of show, right? We don't call ourselves a trade show. We're a networking meeting. We're a resource sharing meeting. Okay. We have booths, you know, we have a exhibit hall that you will walk around and talk with people and that's great, but sit and have a meal with somebody. Don't sit by yourself, go up to people and just introduce yourself, you know, go to a talk where, you know, to one of our educational talks, you know, attend our um, receptions in the evening where you can, you know, have a, a drink uh, and and meet people. And that's really the magic of what we feel our network is all about. And so I think I've imbued that. And that's what I experienced 25 years ago when I started yeah. attending the NAUMD. I think like a lot of small trade associations, though, Jeff, we we were falling down because we weren't modernizing. We weren't embracing a lot of the more modern ways that, you know, people don't need a directory anymore. We have right. the internet, right? Right. Uh, people don't need a list of suppliers um, and even the list of contacts. You know, you don't join, in my opinion, you don't join trade associations anymore just to get lists. And I can tell if someone's talking to me about joining that all they want is the list and that I'll never you know, see them again after they get the list. And I think they're missing the point because like what you experienced and yes, that's in person. And I know I'm going off on uh, multiple tangents here, but that's not what the network is about is, is not just list, you know, and I even tell that to exhibitors. I say, so if some of you that are new here, uh, you, you know, don't expect to sit at your booth for two days and you will have 500 people walk by your booth every day and some of them will stop and talk to you. That's not what this is about. You know, you may only have five conversations a day with people, but I think you're going to find that those five conversations are not rushed. They're more meaningful. You can actually hear people and, you know, they and learn who's going to fit and who's not going to fit with what you're doing. Uh, and then we had every board member introduce themselves. Right. And so some newcomers were like, that was an extraordinary welcome because here now is 15, 18 different companies, many of whom you know, already knew that they wanted to meet those people from those companies because these are some of the bigger companies in our industry. So, you know, they already were impressed and felt like, oh my gosh, you know, here's these big companies taking the time to stand up there, introduce themselves and and talk to me for a second. So that's some of the energy that we're, we're um, reinvigorating. 
Um, and then the last uh, point would be is that we are looking to bring our entire supply chain closer into the conversation. So one of the things I asked the board for two years ago when I first took over as executive director is I said, you know, we went from the National Association 90 years ago to the North American Association 20 years ago. And now I said, let's be the network association yep. and allow people to join from anywhere on the planet and see if we can't bring our supply chain into the conversation and not just be, you know, because 90% of what we are offering to North American end users is imported is comes from places other than North America. Right. You know, so that's crazy then if that's the experience that well then let's bring in our supply chain and, you know, for ourselves, we don't allow end users at our show. So um, at our convention. So, and we don't allow them to be members. So we're two thirds of the, of the yeah. vertical. So those are some of the ways in which I think we've seen a fresh energy. I've modernized. We now have an app. We have a portal. We have over 300 individual profiles of people that have registered in our member portal. I quite literally, um, as we're talking, just finished a month of building out Uniform University, where now we have hundreds of articles uh, and learning, you know, and videos and things like, and, and right. it's it's uh, really growing. And the plan is that, you know, when you have a new hire or even a veteran in your uniform company and you want them to learn about this, that, or the other thing, we want to be thought of as, oh, well, that's the place that somebody could go. And like you uh, had experience in the apparel industry, but maybe you're saying, well, what do they mean when they say uniform program? What does that actually mean? Right. Or I'm a little unfamiliar with what a law enforcement professional actually wears or, you know, what is the, what the heck is polyester? I know, you know, right. that things I wear are made of it, but what is that? Why is that important or not important? So some of that, you know, we're, we're building out uh, in a very meaningful way. And then we will also turn a bunch of that into online courses so we could have in the long run, maybe yep. in a couple of years, we could even have, you know, little certification ideas like, okay, well, I'm a salesperson and I took the how to sell a uniform program course right. at the uh, NAUMD Uniform University. So that's what? some of the things that address um, that question. Yeah, very, very, very exciting. And I, I know, you know, I think this, your whole um, answer, you know, validates the importance in this digital transformation that we remain human to human, that we get together and we network. And I do, I do really uh, like the fact that you, you know, the name did change uh, that first word to networking because it is so vital. And and really, there's so many people that that we can benefit in the supply chain from meeting face to face. And I'm, I'm sure many people, uh, dozens of people have come at, come away from the convention, forging new partnerships, I, I would hope. So um, I, you seem really passionate about this is, are you just, are you a passionate business person or are you passionate about, you know, the whole uniform industry? I ended up in the uniform industry because my wife's father. So my father-in-law uh, had a magazine called Made to Measure. His father, so my wife's grandfather, started Made to Measure in 1930. And the, it was a, a publication for the tailor. So that someone that made garments made to measure. They would measure you and they would, they didn't always sew, they rarely sewed the items themselves. Interestingly, they would then send all of those measurements to uh, a shirt maker or yeah. to a company that would make the the suit. So, and that was how men, you know, um, got dressed was, you know, you had these clothes made to measure for you. And, you know, women had uh, similar experiences. It was just not um, typically a tailor that you were going to. But so um, as that industry started to fall away in the ready-to-wear um, uh, emergence, um, the magazine had to do something. So the magazine ended up encouraging local tailors to become uniform dealers. <laughs> so because who still needed custom clothing, who still yeah. needed a clothing that you could measure and then 
hem pants and, you know, make a blazer that matched. It was uniform, you know, uh, wearers, companies that needed uniforms. And then certainly post-World War II, the uniform was very respected. So it wasn't even like a question. A lot of companies were like, of course, we'll have uniforms. And, you know, who are we going to get to help us with all of that? And and so the ta- a lot of the tailoring houses and even the companies that were manufacturing the custom suits went on to become uniform manufacturers. So the magazine followed that. Um, I was a serial entrepreneur. I had already started multiple companies in different spaces. Uh, my first love was the performing arts. I had a bookstore that was in Chicago dedicated to that. I had started a trade paper, like a miniature backstage or variety for the Midwest market. Um, I had a performance company. So we, I had all these other things happening, but then my father-in-law said, maybe you want to work on this magazine with me. You'll make twice as much. You'll work half as hard. And at first I resisted a year later, I came back. I said, you know what, let's see, let's try that. And he, I said, let's work together on it for a year. If, if I like it, great, then maybe you can retire. I'll buy the magazine from you. If not, no harm done. You can just sell it. He was, he had done it for 50 years, Jeff, 50 years. He had done that magazine. And uh, so he was he was ready to be done with that. And then so I came on board. We ended up working together for like five or six years. He was having fun again. Right. I wasn't a young punk trying to prove myself. I was like, do whatever you enjoy doing. You call your friends. Right. I'll I'll sell to everyone else. I'll take care of everything else. You call your friends. And of course, I introduced new technology. He was literally cutting pieces of paper and formatting text by cutting it, you know, up and, and trying to lay out pages. I'm like, no, we can do it on a computer now, Bill. It's like, you know, let me, let us, let us do it on a computer. And then I said, you know what, uh, enough with the tailors. Now we're just all uniforms. So I changed the name of that. We stayed with made to measure because it had all this, you know, Herod, uh, legacy goodwill. But then underneath it, I said the uniform magazine. So we just became, I, I did away with all tailoring editorial and we were just the uniform magazine. We were considered the book for the NAUMD, which is interesting yeah. because we really supported the NAUMD. People would call and say, do I have to be a member to advertise? You know, And we're like, no, we're separate businesses. And so my experience with the NAUMD was at first I was wearing the, the, the magazine hat. Oh, that's the guy from Made to Measure. And then, and, and I loved the uniform industry. It was a friendly industry. Um, it was steady. It was, you know, um, it had products that were actually helping people. I mean, not to be altruistic about it, but you know, we were, we were keeping people from harm. We were saving lives potentially. We were, you know, uh, we were keeping, making things professional. We, you know, there was a lot of things that I really started to appreciate and I knew nothing about apparel. Um, if you go to my closet, you'd still say he knows nothing about apparel. Um, uh, so that wasn't it. It wasn't It wasn't necessarily apparel that I became fascinated with that you were talking about, yeah. but I became fascinated with the uniform, with the concept of how are we building teams and building community? And, you know, and some argue, no, people, you know, hate wearing their uniforms. They just do it because they have to. And, but that's n- so not true <laughs> in my opinion uh, and for many industries. And I think if that is true, then something's wrong with the culture at your organization because it can be such a positive influence and tool right. uh, for so many. So that's kind of how I fell into it was through this magazine. And then being the geek and the technologist, also when the internet came along, I was very quick to respond to all of that. And we ended up, you know, um, I would literally walk up and down Midtown in New York and I was pitching companies like trimmings houses and things like that on building a website. You know, we, so we started out of helper publishing, we started building websites for companies. Uh, Then in the early 2000s, I ended up, uh, starting a, a business that um, uh, catered to the e-commerce space. A lot of the dealers were like, well, if you know about this stuff, can you help us with our online stores? Right. And so I was like, probably tell me what the problem is just in the, the world of Jeff, right? Like I wish right. I had known you then. I could have articulated <laughs> better what I was doing, but I was naturally just saying, just explain to me what's going on. Why is it a problem to do business online for your company? And once they did, then I got 10 dealers together, Jeff. And, and I said, look, I'm going to charge you guys this amount to help you build out these, 
these online stores. But just so you know, then the next few hundred dealers are going to pay a lot less, you know, because then that'll be the magic formula. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. And when I sold my shares in that company, we had probably close to a thousand stores, online wow. stores that we were managing. But don't forget a store like an airline or a police department is a store potentially. Right. 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 Correct. So our largest dealers had, you know, 50 stores online and then many had just one um, and you could have the store within the store. So many didn't want separate stores. They're like, no, all our people order the same way. We're very rigid. <laughs> so we could do it all in one store and just, have that store within a store uh, buying experience yeah. for them. Similar probably to how dealers go on to a manufacturer's website and place orders. It's all sure. kind of in the same uh, ven venue, but that's how I fell into it. But I, I love uh, the entrepreneurial experience. I love, and not just starting a company. Some of my favorite things are what are the first 10 things we need to do in order to accomplish that idea the rinse and repeat let's say what kind of a, i'm probably you know maybe what a coo does right what yeah. someone who is a you know a black belt in six sigma right what what they're more into would be you know that wouldn't interest me as much but some people really get off on that how can we perfect the, the conveyor belt, you know, I mentioned Henry Ford, how can you perfect that, that line so that we really are, you know, uh, efficient. And that's, that's less of interest to me, which is interesting than just creating things that didn't exist before. Yeah. I will thank, well, thank you for that answer. And I was going to say, you definitely have a creative, um, you know, um, slant to how you, go about your day. And I, and I think that for a lot of us, you know, creativity is a, is a form of, you know, it gives us an, an outlet to express ourselves in many different ways, but not everyone is creative and not everyone enjoys that taking nothing and creating something out of nothing. And I, I did, uh, I was going to get there later in questioning. I, I definitely see that in you. And I think that anyone becoming part of the NAUMD should know that, you know, there's always going to be some freshness coming from your mindset, from your thought processes, because you are a creator um, by nature. I mean, you're, you know, being a, being involved in theater. I mean, isn't, isn't each character a creation of unique expression, right? And that, isn't that what kind of um, energizes performers as they get to be different characters all the time and you create that character. So, um, yeah, I see that definitely. And you will, you, Rick, you hear a lot of different, um, executive and leadership voices from this industry. What are you hearing collectively is, is our largest challenge in the uniform industry? So certainly if we think of it from the last last couple of years, looking in hindsight, the number one and number two, and the order didn't matter was uh, people, you know, uh, executive teams are saying they can't fill positions that are they're ready, willing and able to pay and pay a fair wage. It's not like they're just can't fill it because they don't pay enough. And then the second would have been inventory and logistics that everyone, you know, our industry was certainly not immune to the massive um, log jam that happened. Um, I don't know if it was 100% because of COVID or if there's other factors, you know, that were, were involved. So, uh, and I think those continue to be a problem. But boy, at our last board meeting, for example, so many companies were saying that this past year they had double digit growth, that they just you know, things are just going nuts. Everyone, you know, and, and it used to be a joke uh, among the industry saying, you know, show me a poor uniform dealer that, you know, it's just a really good industry that, yeah, yeah. that we do well. And, and that's partly because I don't know, maybe we're a well-kept secret uh, in part because it's that annuity idea that once you have a customer, you own it until you screw up and you're in the how do you avoid screw up business? <laughs> uh, right. So that's that interests me about what you do because um, I had one CEO once say to me, you know, the only way you get business in this business is by taking it from someone else. 
Yeah. Um, uh, I've, I've asked companies, I say, when's the last time you heard from someone who said we didn't wear uniforms historically, but we were interested now in putting all of our people in uniforms. Can you help us? And most people say that's never happened. I've never gotten a call like that. So, which is really interesting. So I, I think that that will present a challenge in the coming years is how do we continue to grow? Are we going to annex more product types into our industry? Um, or are we just going to wait for um, the categories of people that wear uniforms to grow? And they are growing. That's the good news is that, you know, we do have categories, you know, transportation uh, is growing hospitality now that COVID is over, you know, right. is growing. We definitely have industries that are, you know, 95% of the employees wear uniforms. Uh, it's growing. Um, I think that uh, we will see a lot more um, international work happening. Yes. I think that as more of our customers become uh, operators in multiple countries, I think that's that the barrier to that is is going down so the larger dealers are able to take on more global clients um you know back in the day i remember you know 20 years ago interviewing a company that was you know managing the burger king program and they talked about how no it's really divided like they divide up the world into pieces and yeah. then each area does their own sourcing does their own production does their own right and i think yeah. that that's that's changed. I don't think that's that's really true anymore. I think that now we're all going to start operating as um, centralized um, disbursement and distribution um, centers for a more global client. The whole world has become a seamless transactional, you know, environment uh, in, in many ways. And it, it, I think you're right. I think you're going to see more of that. The water, the the, the oceans and the seas aren't going to separate us that much anymore. Uh, yeah. And certainly don't anymore. Um, you know, we, we see that certainly in the digital world, but yeah, in the, in the real physical, you know, supply chain world. And yeah, I think we're going to, I think we're going to see that as well. When you consider a lot of organizations out there that are kind of sitting on the fence and have not become part of the NAUMD to date. Is there anything you would like to say to them? Is there any special message from your heart that you'd like to express to them if they're listening to this podcast? We're not your father or your grandfather's NAUMD. <laughs> um, an interesting thing happened when I first took over as executive director and I tried to call so many people that I know in the industry and they say, oh, Rick, yeah, we used to go. That was their response. So if I dissect that statement, of course, the used to is a problem because they're saying they don't participate anymore. But they used the phrase go. So the only thing they associated with the NAUMD was this annual in-person meeting yeah. that, you know, yes, we were singing the praises of it. But one thing that was hugely important to me, and I told the board, I'm going to be trying, you know, a few dozen different ways and services and products to make us a year-round networking organization. And only a handful of them are going to work. The rest, we will scratch our head and say, what were we thinking? But that's okay, because over the next couple of years, we'll find the ones that work. Yeah. So that's what I would say to companies that um, used to be involved in the NAUMD and aren't anymore is that we're not just about an annual in-person event, although while that is still important to us, we're working on webinars, podcasts. Um, we have a member-only platform where people are going on. It's like a miniature LinkedIn, and you can connect with other net, you know, members and have dialogue with them. We have network groups where you can be posting um, these groups, we try to meet throughout the year as well and share resources and ideas um, and this growing idea of the library of the university so that it's asynchronous resource sharing. So, for instance, you know, all of the talks of from, you know, speakers will be putting out there as well. So, yeah. you know, you can be sharing you showed up, you know, for a talk, but you want other people in your organization to hear it. So, but it's very challenging. There's, you know, um, and then what are the new levels of dealer distributor that we can speak to? 
but I'm very interested in who, where are the next hundred dealer distributors? Many have gotten bought through merger and acquisition. Um, many have owners who are of a certain age, um, but there's also all of these newcomers to the industry. And they say that trade association members typically are 30, 40 year olds, actually, you know, in their thirties and forties. One, you're looking for how to identify yourself as a professional within an industry, because now you've decided, okay, I think this is where I'm going to stick around and work. B, you're, you're looking to move around within the industry and, you know, um, get more customers, maybe, you know, better jobs over time, better, you know, so um, that's a kind of a typical age. And I think a lot of the uniform industry ended up now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s from all of the companies that used to be members of the NAUMD. So currently we're about 220 uh, members, Jeff, um, and we are tracking about 1,500 individuals among those 220 companies. So it's not just the number of doors, but it's also equally important because some of these companies are so massive, right? You want to be able to connect with, you know, it's not just connecting with a CEO. They often can't help you necessarily the way that absolutely we have all all of the CEOs that are 220 companies are member, you know, active participants, but then there's, you know, where are all the sourcing managers, salespeople, you know, um, and, and that marketing people. So it's about a third manufacturers, a third dealer distributors, and a third support companies, uh, people in technology or services that that support our, our industry. What I typically ask Jeff at the end of these is, do you recommend the uniform industry for young people? Absolutely do. And I, and, and Rick, let me just say that uh, before I give you my, my full answer that I I'm, that's part of the DNA of the uniformer podcast. So folks, anyone who comes on the show and that I, uh, you know, get the uh, pleasure of uh, interacting with during the the podcast, you're always going to get asked that question at the end, because Rick has set the stage (laughs) and uh, the answer is emphatically yes. And, and Rick, because I, I believe that you know you're you're helping people you went back and you said it earlier it's an industry that helps people we help people be more comfortable to to you know find safety in the apparel that they wear they they their day goes better if they are wearing items that make them feel good about themselves if they're items that are comfortable if they're items that um you know just, um, I, I guess, really make the person glad that they're in the profession that they're in. So absolutely. And in fact, my daughter even asked me, you know, she's obviously watched dad grow up and segued through the industries. And she said, dad, uh, when you retire, is there any, you know, any way I can maybe buy your sales agency from you? And I said, wow. So, you know, I do have a little bit of family interest, didn't even have to ask, but uh they asked me. And so, uh, no, I would say absolutely. It's a wonderful uh, group of people. Uh, it's It certainly is. And I've, I've come to know that firsthand. And it's a small industry. I, I believe it's very profitable in most cases, Rick, just like you've mentioned. And, you know, it, it could be a, a well-kept secret, but, and, and it's not that everybody's gouging people out there and price wise. It's just that if you can run it the right way, it does have annuity in it. It does have repeat business in it. And um, so, no, I would definitely um, uh, ask, you know, invite any one of my relatives or, or, you know, certainly uh, kids to be part of it for sure. Wonderful. Love it. I love it. Yes. And I do love your passion for all of this and for, um, you know, just the experience economy in general and anyone that's thinking about empathy and connection, then yeah, you've got me. You've definitely well, got let me, me. Let me, let me just close my point, you know, just with a, with a point that I made in, in the discussion we had. And I think it's just so cool and I'll cut to the chase, but um, I, I read about the DNA of Starbucks back in the nineties when they were really trying to figure out who they were and what their brand DNA was. And, as it turned out, you know, the the end result was they realized they were an atmospheric brand. It wasn't so much the coffee, but it was more of the atmosphere of mm-hmm. drinking the coffee. But a barista, a barista told the chairman, Mr. Schultz, um, he told them in, in, in very short wording and summed up the whole nature of their DNA. And I think it's great for any of us to take 
into what we do. And the barista said, Mr. Schultz, explaining the brand DNA of Starbucks is simple. Here, we don't serve coffee to people. We serve people coffee. And I think if we could understand that we're serving people uniforms and not uniforms to people, I think we're in much better shape. I love that. That's wonderful. Yep. It came, came from Ray, Ray Bedbury's book, A New Brand World, written somewhere around 2002. Ray was the CBO chief brand officer over there. He'd come from Nike and came over to Starbucks and, you know, about 1995, really wanted to find his way. And so he embarked on what they call the big dig over there. And the, the big dig was to find out what what was their brand DNA. And that's what they came up with. That's 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 a good one. I'm going to use that one. I may even credit Jeff Mason as telling me that. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. And um, we look forward to talking with you more about everything and to seeing you and hearing you host uh, more episodes of the podcast uh, with me. I appreciate you joining me on this adventure. Well, thank you for asking, Rick. And thanks for having me on today. And folks, uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to having some great guests on in the future. 